Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Hearing none, um, I want to speak a little bit about our reading from the gospel then, because I think this text shows us something uh, about our humanity that is universal and absolutely true. Uh, to paraphrase St. Paul later in the New Testament, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Uh, I'd ask you if you like to be told what to do, but I know the answer. You're an American. You live in the 21st century. There's nothing more... Um, American than not liking being told what to do. We people, even not in 21st century America, we are hardwired to live with freedom and independence and to make our own uh, decisions. And when we are told what we have to do, we automatically respond with um, frustration and resentment. This is fresh on my mind, of course, because I'm the parent of a toddler. And uh, God help me, telling a toddler what to do is an exercise in futility. It just it doesn't work. Um, maybe you've tried it with your own toddlers. You know what this is like. But have you ever tried to tell your spouse or a romantic partner at what point what they should do? Uh, you can sugarcoat it all you want. You can call in a favor. You can bargain with them. You can make your command sound like a request. But we all know what's going on. People don't like to be told what to do. This happens in the workplace all the time, doesn't it? Your boss um, always delegates to you the worst task. Or your colleagues, they call together meetings that really aren't all that necessary. But if you don't go, if you don't show up, it will become conspicuous in the office. Um, Clients who nitpick the project into oblivion, telling you this and that all of the time. Maybe it is the, the customer who is irate. I, um, I earlier this week went out and grabbed pizza for dinner for the family. And uh, I was over in Latrobe at a national pizza chain. And as I'm over there ordering, um, I walk in the door. I, I ordered on my app. I was going to go pick it up. And there's a very angry and irate woman uh, berating the staff at this uh, pizza shop. She says, I know I ordered my pizza from this location, and I know I ordered it from my app, and my app took my payment, so where is my pizza? You figure it out. Get on it with your manager. Figure out where my order went. And I've never seen someone look quite so dead as the high schooler behind the cash register who is at the whims of either an irate person who doesn't know technology or a massive multi-billion dollar company's app that isn't working. Nobody likes being told what to do. 
But today in our reading, we're going to find Jesus at his bossiest. We're going to find Jesus at his bossiest. Uh, Jesus is going to tell Simon, who uh, in this text is named Simon, but he has a fuller name, Simon Peter. I'm going to refer to him as Peter for the rest of our time together this morning. St. Peter, Peter the disciple, that guy. Jesus is going to tell him what to do. Jesus is going to boss him around. And we're going to see Peter begin to get resentful of Jesus. And uh, he's going to start being sarcastic and frustrated with Jesus. By the end of our reading, um, Peter is going to have a complete change of heart. He's going to drop everything and follow this guy who had been bossing him around. So what is it about being bossed around that we don't like? But yet here's Peter who willingly says, okay, Jesus, now you can boss me around. What happens in Peter? What might need to happen in us um, for us to understand more about our relationship with being bossed around? And is our understanding of the Christianity just that Jesus is a boss who wants to give us rules and marching orders? All of these things come together today in our reading from Luke chapter 5. And our reading comes at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Things are relatively early on in Jesus' ministry when we hit Luke chapter 5. Jesus has been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been driving out demons, he's healing the sick. And word is getting around um, that there is a prophet of God, a miracle healer from God, a special guy going around in this region of Judea. And he's healing the sick, and he's doing all of these wonderful, blessed things. And so crowds have started to form. And the reading today is that Jesus is trying to stand by a lake, uh, the lake, um, also the Sea of Galilee, same thing, Lake of um, Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, different names, same place. He's trying to preach and teach, but the people are pressing in around him. I imagine Jesus kind of on the shore doing this sort of thing, trying not to fall back into the water because so many people want to come and hear him and be healed by him. And so as he's trying to preach and teach, he has an idea. He sees some fishermen whose boats have arrived on the shore. It's presumably the morning. They've, they've gone out fishing. They're cleaning their nets. They're packing it in. And Jesus says to one of them, a guy named Simon Peter, he says, Hey, uh, do me a favor. Row me out from shore for a little bit so I can teach and not be hounded by these people. And um, i got to tell you, that's, that seems like a minimum question, like a minimal request. But for, for this fisherman, it's really not. Because when you fish, as we find out in our text, you fish at night. You work the, 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 the night shift. You're a third shift career uh, if you are an ancient Near East fisherman. And you're going out at night, and you're throwing your nets, and you're trying to get fish, and that's the best time to go fishing. And so you've come in after working all night. You're exhausted. Um, we learn here that Peter hadn't caught anything, so he's frustrated, he's angry, he's had a terrible day, and Jesus says, um, hey, can I get you to put me out for a minute? So when you think about it, right, um, I, I, I think about it in this term of like, imagine a big country preacher out in the middle of the woods and the night security guard is there um, and he's helping with this big revival meeting and the night security guard's about to go home after a whole night of working his late night shift and uh, the preacher says, hey, the crowds are getting so big, I need a podium, can I stand in the back of your pickup truck? And so you've got this night watch guy half dozing off in the driver's seat of the pickup truck while the preacher's standing in the back to large crowds. And that's the scenario that really comes forward here. Peter says, okay, I guess. And Jesus gets in his boat and 
Peter rows him out with the oars into the water for a bit. And Jesus now can preach to lots of people because they can stand on the bank and he can project. And who knows how long Jesus goes on with his preaching and teaching. Maybe he goes on for, you know, 20 minutes to finish it up. Probably not. He goes on for a while, I think. And so poor Peter's sitting there in the boat kind of doing this thing, right? Kind of doing this thing because he's tired. He's worked all night. And so the request to go out on the boat is not a neutral one. It is one that significantly uh, inconveniences Peter, the exhausted fisherman. But then Jesus goes one step further. Jesus is now finishing up his sermon and he's done. And he says, hey, uh, Peter, do me a favor. Throw out your nets and uh, do, a, do another run with the nets. See if you can't catch anything. Put out into the deep and let your nets down. What a doubly inconvenient thing to say to Peter. Because what's Peter doing? He's falling asleep. He's tired. His nets are all out of the water. They're dry. He's already picked out from the nets. He's cleaned his nets. He's got all the seaweed and the you know crab shells and the, the, the detritus from the bottom and the dirt and the mud. He's cleaned his nets. He's like, what are you talking about? If I put out, right, if I throw my net out in the water again, my nets are going to be dirty. It's going to take me another hour to pick through the net and clean it back off. And not only that, um, first off, you don't go fishing in the day because the fish don't bite. And on top of it, we didn't catch anything last night. The fish aren't biting Jesus. Um, and so when Peter responds, right, um, Peter is full of sarcasm. What does he say? He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So Peter, in that one sentence, there's a whole lot. You're a rabbi who used to be a carpenter, Jesus. You don't know a daggum thing about fishing for tilapia in the Sea of Galilee. So, uh, you know, cool your jets. I'm going to do it, but I don't know if you understand just what you're asking. Um, the, as the kids these days say, um, Jesus looks like he's being a little extra. He's looking like he's being high maintenance. Uh, as the Pittsburghers say, Jesus is getting nebby. He's getting into Peter's business and he's inconveniencing Peter and kind of telling him what to do. And um, it, it's completely reasonable for Peter to express some frustration. Maybe you can relate to this, right? Maybe it's been a work environment and you've been filling out these you know, uh, redundant or unnecessary reports. Or maybe you've been at the line at the DMV or some other government office and you swear the website says you didn't need that third piece of identification, but now the guy at the counter is saying you gotta bring it. Um, maybe um, your teacher at school uh, nitpicked your homework and they're making you do it again because you did it in blue ink and not black ink, or you did it in cursive instead of straight hand. Uh, maybe the doctor won't prescribe you that medicine because they want you to try weight loss and exercise first. Right? One of life's frustrations, great frustrations, is being put upon by your superiors in ways that exasperate and outrage us. And if we stop the story right here, that's exactly what is going on in Peter's mind. Peter is, is, is exhausted, he's tired. This rabbi, ex-carpenter, who doesn't know how to fish is bossing him around and telling him what to do. Um, and the only thing that redeems this is the miracle that Jesus works as a result. Because what happens? The net goes over the boat, the fish come running, and they start to haul the net back up. And the net is so heavy, it's so full of fish. This net, this professional ancient tool for catching the fish, it begins to snap. All right? It's sort of like that scene in Finding Nemo where all the fish are going down and pulling the boat with it. It's like that. 
the fish are, are, are running into the net. And what started off as the worst day of business for Peter and his partners in the fishing business is turning into the largest catch they have ever received. Peter, uh, trying to get the, the, the fish out, he can't do it. He has to motion to his pals, his business partners who are at the shore. Hey, we caught, come quick. And they get out there and they're all having trouble and they're filling two whole boats with this miraculous catch of fish. So even though Jesus comes in and inconveniences Peter, seemingly zero sympathy for the hardship of his vocation, um, Jesus is sort of giving Peter compensation. It's like a paycheck almost, right? The guy who couldn't, uh, who had zero business uh, now has so much fish he doesn't know what to do with them and needs multiple boats. The fact that Jesus stepped forward and says to the the, um, to him, like, hey, I'm going to inconvenience you, um, but let me thank you for this work that you have provided for me. Um, what we find is Jesus is maybe more than just this nebby little rabbi um, with delusions of grandeur. Maybe Jesus is more than just um, this uh, sort of extra religious teacher who's trying to inconvenience people for his own ministry's glory. And so what happens? Um, Peter responds to this. He, uh, he recognizes he, he got it all wrong. And you get a word of repentance from Peter. What does Peter say? He says, deliver me, uh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This is something that we see over and over and over again, that when people have encounters with the divine, their immediate response is not sort of happy-go-lucky excitement. It's terror. Um, because Peter recognizes you got to be a pretty big deal you're either Aquaman or God himself to control fish like this sort of thing. And so Peter freaks out. Um, Peter recognizes that he was giving um, an eye roll that you can feel 2,000 years later. He was giving 2,000-year-old eye rolls and sarcasm and resentment to someone who is clearly marked by the blessings of heaven and someone who is clearly filled with the Spirit of God. So he apologizes, and he says, I'm sorry, leave me. Like, I don't deserve to be around you. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Did you notice that, that he didn't call Jesus Lord earlier? He called him something else. He said this, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word we let down the nets. Master, right? That's the sarcastic, that's the resentful, that's the put out Peter. He says, Master. But then when we get Jesus' miraculous catch of fish, he changes his language. What does he say? He says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Did you catch that? Two different words that have similar meanings, but they're a little different. Master, Lord. Master, in this sense, of course, um, is a word that has to do with like just a straight-up boss, someone who has authority over you. But Lord is a word that has religious connotations to it. Sure, lots of people in the Old Testament were called Lord, but so were all the great powers of heaven. And so what is happening in Peter is he's recognizing that there's something special about Jesus, that when he bossed Peter around, he wasn't just being a boss for boss sake. He wasn't on a power trip. That there was something heavenly going on in Jesus' instruction. And I wonder how many of us today, inside the church, or how many people outside the church, 
I wonder how many of us find Jesus to be a master, a nebby, meddling, bossy pants master, someone who makes our life more complicated and more frustrating for their own sake and their own reputation. How many people only know Jesus to be a dispenser of rules, someone who jumps in the boat of their life and shanghais them, demanding they change their destination and direction? Right? How many of you are, how many people outside the church only know Jesus as a stay here, do this, don't do that, go here? As if Jesus was some cosmic father figure and we were reduced to spiritual toddlers. And all we do is rage against the authority and ultimately helpless, um, uh, you know, helplessness of trying to kick against the bricks, as uh, Paul says, of the will of God. Right? Plenty of people have that experience. Plenty of people grow up with that experience. I think, for example, um, of uh, super religious households that produce really great sort of um, uh, off-the-rails rock and roll stars. Um, Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses, right? Uh, father was a uh, father figure was a uh, Pentecostal holiness preacher. Jimmy Page of uh, Led Zeppelin, no, not excuse me, uh, Brian May of Led Zeppelin, uh, the singer of Led Zeppelin. Uh, his um, his parents were super religious and never let him listen to rock and roll when he was a, t- a child. They thought it was um, inappropriate and the devil's music. And well, he went on to write some of the devil's best music, if that's the case. Um, These were people who, they grew up in these households, they only knew Jesus as an arbiter of rules, and so when they got to leave their house, and when they went into their adult life, they just completely left the faith behind and went the 180 opposite direction. The same thing goes for um, pop stars. Um, Katy Perry, both of her parents were Christian ministers, and they raised her in a household where she couldn't even call those little Easter um, eggs that were prepared in a special way. She wasn't allowed to call them deviled eggs because the word devil could not be said in their house. Or Lady Gaga, for example. She grew up in a Catholic school that was so oppressive and so rules-based with the nuns and the rulers and the whapping of the hands um, that she stopped praying to Jesus and said, I just wanted to find a woman I could pray to instead. Right? If, if, if all we know is Jesus as an arbiter of rules and who comes to us and gives us rules and regulations, then we're going to end up in those places where we resent the heavens for all of the rules and none of the love. That is what we see happening to Peter at the beginning of our reading. But if we only know Jesus as a dispenser of rules, then we only know half of Jesus. We don't even know half. We know less than half of Jesus. If we only know Jesus as the rule dispenser, then we only know a little bit of what is something much, much bigger and such grander. Because he doesn't just want Peter um, to, to, to do this for his own reputation or his own glory. He doesn't sort of use Peter as a stepping stone. He wishes to compensate Peter. He wishes to bless Peter, to thank Peter, and to recognize that Peter is not just um, uh, sort of a peon to his greater glory, but Peter is someone that he loves and cares for. So what does he do? He blesses him with this miraculous catch of fish, which is the same thing as writing a massive paycheck um, to thank him for all of the work that he did to help him with his ministry, this inconveniencing of the boat. 
Jesus extends his blessing to Peter and gives Peter a paycheck, a thank you gift, an honorarium, whatever you want to call it. But he also gives Peter a glimpse into the heavenly realities that have been served by Peter's willingness to go and be inconvenienced. Um, That he recognizes this catch of fish is not just about the fish. It's a glimpse into the grace and love and mercy of heaven. That God doesn't just want you to be a drone following his rules, but there is a divine desire to have a relationship with you in all your ups and all your downs and in all the ways that your life is turned upside down by the will and holiness of God. A master is someone we obey, but we don't have to like a master. A Lord is someone we obey, but we also respect. A master gets our compliance. A Lord gets our devotion. So you can see that things shift dramatically for Peter once he recognizes that Jesus is not just a dispenser of rules. So how does our passage end? It's fascinating when Peter comes and gives Jesus his repentant uh, recognition that he is in the presence of something divine, um, Jesus gives him one last gift, the invitation to be his disciple. What does he say in this great eternal pun that the King James famously tells us? For now I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. He invites Jesus to be his disciple. And Peter recognizes the power of that so much. What does he do? He leaves the fish behind. Did you catch that? He leaves the fish behind. But the big catch of fish, it says, when they get back to shore, they drop everything and immediately follow him. Maybe maybe Peter turns to his competitors and says, hey guys, we're getting out of the business. Boats, fish, take care of all that. You can have that. Return this to the, the boss. We're, we're, we're out. We're quitting. We're following this guy. See you later. They don't take the fish. They don't take it to market and sell it and put the money in the Jesus' treasury bank. They just leave it. They leave their nets. They don't clean the nets. They just leave them behind. And so we have something great and wondrous here. And Peter and James and John recognize it. And they recognize this is an opportunity to follow someone who's much, much more than the sum of his inconveniences. So see in our reading, friends, today, a Jesus who wants to be in relationship with you. A Jesus who has a bit of a sense of humor. A Jesus who plays for fun. It's a myopic and it's a spiritual tragedy that to think that this is merely Jesus as the morality police. Um, as some big guy in heaven who wants you to get in line and follow the rules. And the beauty of being a Christian, friends, is that um, that same Jesus who dealt so sort of impish and puckishly with Peter, um, he calls us to be a disciple as well today. He invites us to see that he is not the God of rules. He is not the God of, of rulers on your knuckles. He is not the God of the finger wag. He is the God of generosity, the God of fun, the God who will inconvenience your life in a way that will drive you up the wall but then reveal to you the purpose that makes it all worth it in the end. For Peter, he gets a glimpse of this reality through the the miraculous catch of fish. For us, 
we see it most clearly in the crucifixion and resurrection. Because our sins are very specific sins. The things that are parts of our spirit that we know aren't good, and yet we can't seem to be free of them. Those things have all been forgiven and dealt with. Our futures in heaven have been secured. Our present problems are no longer life-defining. The petty tyrants of this world, the Karens at the pizza shop, they do not have the final word. The dark forces of the spiritual world that are aligned against us have already been defeated. And that's a heck of a lot better than any miraculous catch of fish. But it accomplishes the same goal. God announces today to Peter and to you that he loves you in a very singular and specific way. And you, friends, are invited to be his student, his follower, and his friend. He won't accept your compliance, but he will accept your devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.